on Easter Sunday, little Johnny listened as his Sunday school teacher told the class that the lesson would be about the meaning of Easter. And she asked the question, can anyone tell the Easter story? Uh, when no one volunteered, she asked little Frankie, and he, I don't know, and little Susie, I have the foggiest idea. And uh, finally, little Johnny, you know, decided to raise his hand and kind of, you know, a little bit timid, but um, uh, the teacher was pleasantly surprised at his willingness, because usually he was actually the kind of the class clown. Um, but he said this, on Easter, Jesus and his disciples were eating the Jewish Passover at the Last Supper, but later, Jesus was, uh, was uh, deceived and turned over to the Romans by one of his disciples, and he was accused of teaching he was the Messiah, and when he was confessing to it, the Romans made him wear a crown of thorns and took him to be crucified and was hung on a cross with nails in his hand and his feet. And he said, it is finished, which means debt paid in full and died. And he definitely was dead because the water was separated from his blood as he was stabbed in his side. They buried him in a nearby cave on Friday, which was sealed off by a large boulder. Well, the teacher was shocked. And she said, very good, Johnny. The teacher kind of was gasping excitedly. And, and, and she said, and what, help, what else happened that we celebrate on Easter? Johnny thought for a moment before continuing. He said, now on Easter Sunday, each year we move the boulder aside and see that Jesus can come out. And if he sees his shadow, <laughs> then we know that there'll be six more weeks of winter. <laughs> Sometimes the facts around the cross of Jesus Christ can get sort of jumbled up by people. And it is important to know um, everything we can about Jesus Christ. It does one well to make a life study of Jesus, our Messiah. And that's why I think the Gospel of Matthew has been so rewarding, you know, because uh, we've been just really focusing in on Jesus. And by the way, if you weren't with us in the Old Testament, we were still focused on the person and the work of Jesus because it's written, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. Uh, I love the Bible for its multi-layered uh, truth, you know, and, and, and it's so important to know Jesus Christ and know all about him. Jesus declared himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. And it's important to know Jesus. Acts 4.12, Jesus declared that there's no other name, or, you know, the scriptures declared no other name under heaven among men whereby we can be saved. It's all about Jesus Christ. And so Jesus even changed the world so much, you know, um, I, I love it there in the book of Acts. We're going to see uh, in Acts 17.6 where the Sanhedrin and those guys, um, they're going to they're gonna accuse the disciples of turning the world upside down. You guys have turned the world upside down, but I, I think Jesus turned the world right side up. He gave us the, the way, the truth, the life. Um, and, and really, this is such a, a, a key time, as we talked about on Sunday uh, and Saturday this last weekend, that the resurrection, the, the cross without the resurrection would be meaningless. There would be no validity to the cross had it not been for the resurrection. And that's, that's important as we kind of take a look at this chapter in depth on this Wednesday evening. Um, you know, looking at the world around us right now, there's a lot of people who don't really know what true Christianity is. Now, one of the dangers of making statements like that is people will come up to a person like you or definitely a person like me and say, well, how do you know what true Christianity is? And that comes usually from a person that's into relativism. It's a new religion in the last 20 years. I call it God to me. 
God to me, well, it's more of a woman and I, I think he's a woman. So, uh, you know, mother nature, God, a queen of heaven or whatever. And the, my third eye of understanding has told me that I, I don't think you really need a man to die for your sins. And I like to think of God as this big benevolent, you know, genie that I get my wishes. Like people just say stupid stuff and there's no basis for what they say. Um, it's amazing to me how even, you know, um, we've seen that with uh, with people, even in our leadership of our country, you know, talking about Christianity like they're, they're Christians. Um, it's interesting because um, I, I do believe we've had some good Christian presidents in the past. Um, but it's funny because like, you know, our current president claims to be a Catholic and, and the Catholics haven't really owned him as a Catholic. Um, and there's a reason why. Because um, he's into relativism. Uh, and um, now what's interesting though, however, the Pope is moving toward relativism if you haven't followed the whole story. Now, but there's a lot of, you know, depending on your Vatican II Catholic or different kinds of Catholics, Catholics kind of believe different things. But, but is, is Biden, a, a, you know, a really solid Catholic or, or even probably the two biggest Catholics in our political system is Biden and Pelosi. Um, but it's interesting because um, this is, this is, uh, this is what they said on Palm Sunday. This is what both Biden and Pelosi acknowledged on Palm Sunday. Here's, here was their Palm Sunday message. It was an article out of the Washington Examiner that noticed Biden and Pelosi acknowledged transgender day of visibility, but ignore Palm Sunday altogether. Uh, the article says, but uh, both Biden and Pelosi, who routinely tout their Catholic faith when it is convenient for them, enthusiastically recognize something called trans day of visibility on Twitter. The omission of the holy day and the conspicuous observance of piety toward transgenderism come less than a week after a radicalized transgender shooter killed six people at a Christian school, including three nine-year-old students. Um, it's interesting that, you know, they ignored Palm Sunday. Um, and another reason why Biden and those guys are not necessarily part of the, you know, Catholic orthodoxy is, is the number one probably deal is the abortion issue. As, a, as Biden is a pro-abortion, so is Pelosi, uh, person. There are many, many bishops. You can see articles. Bishops have protested saying, he, you know, he should not be able to take communion as a Catholic because of that, um, that view and what have you. Um, you know, uh, the news is rife with these kinds of things. Biden says transgender people uh, are shaping our nation's uh, soul in an official proclamation. Uh, this was just last week. Biden's statement um, went on to tout what he outlined as the administration's efforts supporting the American transgender community. The president also pointed to his decision to allow transgender people to serve in the military once again, as well as his efforts to include what he describes as gender markers on U.S. passports. Um, so here's a guy who claims to be a Catholic Christian, um, but doesn't really follow biblical Christianity, not even close. In fact, most of what he talks about, and who are you to say that, Brett? No, as a, as a guy who loves the Bible, um, I, I'm just gonna say it, uh, much of what he does really goes totally against uh, what the Bible actually teaches. Well, Brett, are you saying that Trump is following the Bible? Never said that. He also is a big honking sinner. Um, in fact, who should you vote for in 2024? Um, well, the, the problem is you're gonna have to vote for a sinner. Uh, that's, that's been my mantra here at Athe Creek. I've been accused of saying who you should vote for. And, I, and I've, all, I've never told anybody who to vote for, that's a lie. But I would say you're gonna have to vote for a sinner. Uh, well, which one are you talking about? Both of them, whoever. Uh, if they have a pulse and their name is not Jesus the Messiah, 
um, you're, you're electing a horrible, wretched, miserable sinner. And if I were president, I would also fit that bill. So the point is, um, it, it's interesting, but, but in this day of relativity, what is a Christian? You know, it's, it's interesting because if you ask what a Muslim is, you'll get different answers too. Um, and and it's, it's always funny to me, you know, uh, how do you know what a Christian really is or a Muslim really is? The answer is kind of simple. Just ask a fundamentalist. A fundamentalist? Yeah. Ask a fundamentalist Muslim what they believe. Because fundamental Islam, uh, most Muslims around the world would say that's the purest form of the uh, Islamic theology. Um, just ask them and you'll know. Don't ask, you know, um, you know, one of these guys with the, you know, the hat that's, uh, you know, a rapper today in America wearing the little fancy hat. Yeah, I'm a Muslim. Because uh, he doesn't know. He's not a fundamentalist. Uh, and he, I probably know more about the Quran than most of those guys. I'm just saying. Um, it's, it's really sad, you know, what, what's happened where um, people like to do that with Christianity too. People that, well, I'm a Christian. Uh, no, you're not. Well, how are you to know that, Brett? The Bible. Uh, it gives us a, a clear definition of what a Christian is. Watch out for that. Um, uh, and ask a fundamentalist Christian who uh, believes in the fundamentals of the Bible. Now, fundamentalism has, in the last 20 years, become the new F word in most of the world. If you're a fundamentalist Christian, you're the worst thing that ever happened. And, and I can't say that I identify with all fundamentalist Christians because there's some wacko ones out there calling themselves that. But we, we do get to, what is, who did Jesus claim to be? What does the Bible say about Jesus? The Bible is the safe ground. Don't listen to what everybody else says. Just stick with the Bible, stick with the word of God, and you're good to go. I love the safety of the Bible, and that's why studying Jesus is such an important thing. A born-again Christian uh, is, is someone who uh, recognizes they're a sin, sinner and that they're headed for hell and destruction because we're all sinners. But the Christian repents of their sin, accepts the work of the cross, believes that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. And when they confess that with their mouth and believe it in their heart, the Bible declares them saved, which we would say if you're saved, then you're part of the Christian faith, Christian family. Um, that's an important thing to know. Um, now, the reason we, we talk about that is Jesus uh, made all those claims and we've been studying that for a while and um, and we've talked about how without blood sacrifices, there's no uh, you know, remission of sin. Uh, we talked about that from Hebrews 9.22 just a few weeks ago. And the blood that would be sacrificed has to be innocent blood. And Jesus is the only one, only one who did that. That's why Jesus is the only way to heaven. Uh, because he's the only one who had innocent blood that was shed for our sins. So Matthew 28, uh, this little chapter, is one that really affirms our faith like we talked about on Sunday. And it's the sign that Jesus would prove that he was the Messiah. Does anybody remember the name Messiah? What does that word mean? Anybody? King. Messiah means king. In fact, uh, you know, the Jews in the Old Testament would have called uh, King Saul, Messiah Saul. Uh, that was the, the word they used, Messiah for king. Um, but there was the Messiah that the Jews were looking for, the one that would be uh, the, 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 the king, uh, an everlasting king, everlasting covenant through the line of David. That's the Messiah. So there is a difference, and Jesus is, is uh, the Messiah. The reason I point that out is the Gospel of Matthew in our study really presents Jesus as the Messiah of the Jews. And that's been kind of a theme also. 
that we've been covering. So let's go uh, pick it up where we were uh, last Wednesday night, verse one. Bro, you already read verse one on Sunday. Oh, I dabbled in it, but let's go a little deeper. Verse one, it says in verse one, in the end of the Sabbath, uh, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. Now, one of the things, and, and, and I'm not gonna take the time to do this completely tonight, I might touch on a few things, but one of the things the skeptics of the Bible, and also, even if you're a lover of the Bible, there, there can be some confusion about the order of events and some of the stuff that happened around the garden tomb on Resurrection uh, Sunday. Uh, there's confusion, and it has a lot to do with the, the four Gospels. Um, the confusion tends to swirl when looking at the what's called the harmony of the gospel. When you take all the four gospel narratives, do they harmonize uh, together or do they conflict against one another? And the skeptics like to say, see, there's, uh, Matthew says there's only one angel. And uh, you know, John talks about how there's two angels. Which one, one or two? And they, they say the Bible's full of errors and contradictions. That's when your pipe puffing, cardigan sweater wearing college professor, so the Bible's full of contradictions. This is one of those areas they love to sort of uh, attack. I'll talk maybe about some of that stuff tonight, but there's a few things that we need to kind of notice. One, one of the controversies is the different times. Um, the women that went to the tomb at different times, seemingly uh, there was a different even order of events. Um, but um, there's, there's plenty, you can just, we're living in a day where there's so much resources out there. If you really want to study these things, like just study the harmony of the gospels as it relates to the resurrection, you'll be shocked how much wonderful information is out there. Uh, scholars who've done the heavy lifting and they explain everything, how the, the, the story harmonizes. And so um, you really have four different perspectives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I believe all perfectly accurate. Um, but what if there's a seemingly uh, contradictory uh, part of the story? Well, the key word there, seeming, you know, it's, it's only seemingly contradictory and, and there's really good answers for all of those things. All of them are correct. And if you put them in a chronological order, you can actually do that. There's, a, there's some resources out there like a chronological Bible. Does anybody have a chronological Bible in their library at home? That's good, a lot of you guys, that's great. Uh, those are fun. Uh, chronological Bibles are great. They take the Bible and, put the order of the scriptures uh, in the order they happened on a timeline. So like when you're reading the Psalms, it's intermeshed with David's battles and when he kills Goliath and, and you're reading the Psalms that he wrote during those times and, and, that's, and all, even the harmony of the gospel is all kind of spelled out and uh, it's kind of a cool study tool. Um, but the, you know, just a quick answer uh, when people say there's an apparent contradiction about the women and who and when did they go to the tomb? Well, the answer probably lies in the fact that there were, um, the women made two separate trips to the tomb. Uh, it's a huge event, Jesus's resurrection. It's a huge event. So it's not hard to imagine why the women would go there once and then go there again on the same Day. So uh, people, you know, make a big deal out of that. It shouldn't be. By the way, a good resource, uh, Bible difficulties. Uh, there's a lot of resources that are called hard sayings of the Bible or Bible difficulties or difficulties of the Bible. There's, there's a bunch of those kinds of books that help answer all the skeptics kind of questions if you're really interested in nailing all those down. Another, um, another controversy that swirls around this is, is when it says Sabbath right here. Uh, it says, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. 
This tells us about some of the days of the week that we're at. The first day of the week, does anybody know what day that would have been? Sunday, that's why we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, because Jesus rose on Sunday. That, that's pretty clear. Um, and uh, by the way, when was the Sabbath day for the Jews at that time? Saturday, right. Um, when did the Sabbath day start? Friday night. So you guys know this. Uh, so it gets a little confusing, especially with an American mindset. We don't think of a day starting uh, Friday night, but that's how they think about it. Their Sabbath day started Friday night and ended uh, Saturday afternoon when the sun started to go down. Uh, then they call the end of the Sabbath. So if you go to Jerusalem to this day, everything shut down on Saturday until about Saturday sundown. Then everything, man, everything opens back up. Stores, buses run. Uh, people are celebrating, having a great time in town. Uh, it's, it's really something to see. They, they do observe Sabbath quite uh, religiously uh, there in Jerusalem. Uh, and it's kind of fun. But, um, but yeah, uh, so, so interesting. Why, why do generally Christians meet on Sunday morning for church? And now if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, you're like, we don't do that. We meet on the holy day of the week. So that's the true Sabbath day. Well, la-ti-da. Uh, good for you. Uh, if you wanna do that, great. Uh, but, but I believe that's a, a, a tough argument. There's, 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 there's an academic argument that we could get into about the Sabbath and what day the church should meet. Um, but I'm gonna give you a real simple argument, and that is whatever. Why do you say that, brother? That's cavalier. No, Colossians says, let no man judge you concerning new moons, feasts, festivals, or Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. I think people are getting hung up on the wrong argument about which day is the official day. Here at Athey Creek, we cover both, uh, both you know, we, we meet on Saturday uh, and we meet on Sunday. So if you think we've taken the mark of beast by meeting on Sunday, come on Saturday, and that's great. Um, <laughs> some of the hardcore, uh, some of the hardcore Seventh-day Adventists believe if you meet on Sunday, you've taken the mark of the beast. That's kind of one of the, but they also thought the rapture of the church was gonna happen uh, when Miller was there. That's a whole nother story. Be that as it may, I won't dive into all that. But, um, but yeah, don't, don't get all hung up on the day. The reason why the church largely adopted Sunday um, as their day, or what we might even call our own, you know, Christian version of Sabbath, is because of the resurrection. The church started meeting in the book of Acts on the first day of the week. Um, now it calls into reason because you know the Sabbath day, the synagogues would have been busy uh, with Jews and do, you know doing their different things on Sabbaths, but then they would meet in the the places of like synagogues and stuff. The church would find anywhere they could meet on Sunday. It'd be like us saying Monday. Uh, let's let's take Monday as our day because you know uh, Sunday's already taken. Uh, but because Jesus rose on Sunday morning. The early church made that the day. That's where the Sunday tradition uh, started. But again, I wouldn't make a life or death argument Sunday or Saturday. Just, I think, take a day, uh, the Sabbath day. We've, and if you're, if you're interested on, should we keep the Sabbath day? Um, I covered that in depth when we were in Exodus 20, talking about the 10 commandments. And I spent a whole Sunday talking about uh, the Sabbath day, to remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. What does that mean? How does that apply to us? So we've done in-depth studies on that. But um, where, where it really starts getting kind of complicated is which day did Jesus die? Now, many of you were raised to believe it was Friday. Some of you were raised to believe it was Thursday. If you're really out there, you might believe it's Wednesday. Um, and people believe all three of those days. There's, there's arguments for both. Um, the exact day of the week of Christ's death 
has been debated uh, for centuries. Um, and what, Brad, that shouldn't be hard. If he rose on Sunday, it says he, he died and rose three on the third day. So what does that mean? Well, <laughs> as it turns out, there's a lot of possibilities. Um, the Wednesday view, I'm gonna go over these really fast uh, and I'm just gonna wet the whistle. If you wanna study this uh, in depth, you can. But the Wednesday view is um, almost entirely based on Matthew 1240. Um, do you remember when Jesus talked about even as Jonah was in the belly of the well three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man, you know, uh, Jesus himself, he talks about how so will he be, um, you know, in the belly of the earth or, you know, uh, in the heart of the earth as, as uh, the scriptures say. But um, this Wednesday theory of, of uh, his death makes mention of three nights, which um, leads proponents to require 72 hours uh, from Christ's death to his resurrection. Um, so Jesus enters Jerusalem on Saturday, they say, on Nisan the 10th, for you that are taking notes, um, uh, in Hebrew calendar, and is betrayed on uh, Tuesday and crucified on Wednesday. That would be Nisan the 14th. Um, and uh, so they believe consequently Jesus must have risen before 6 p.m. on Saturday or else he ends the rising up on the fourth day. Does that make sense to you? It's a little weird, but I'm not sure I can jump on board with that one. Uh, but uh, there's the Thursday view. Um, and this is also similarly based on Jesus's claim in Matthew 12, 40 about the, you know, Jonah and the whale in the belly of the whale, three days and three nights. Jesus made that comparison um, and stating that, you know, if you, if you say that, um, you know, Friday cru crucifixion only has two nights, uh, if Jesus died on Friday, you have Saturday night and Sunday night, and he rose on, so it's two nights. Uh, do you see the problem there? And, the, you know, the Catholics embrace the, of course, Good Friday, and some of the more, in fact, most people embrace Good Friday as the day. Um, but scholars, I mean, most people embrace that, but most scholars are really divided on what day it really is. Proponents of the Thursday crucifixion says that Jesus entered Jerusalem on Sunday, Nisan the 10th, the Last Supper was Wednesday night, then Jesus was crucified on Thursday, uh, which was Nisan the 14th, uh, and the next day, was uh, Friday, was the Sabbath. Um, you say, well, how is Friday the Sabbath? Um, because it was the first day of unleavened bread. This is where the Thursday thing gets really complicated. Um, there's actually more than one Sabbath in some weeks in Jewish times. That's where it gets really complicated because the Bible does talk about the Passover and the Sabbath day in the, in the resurrection story. Um, so if you're gonna take this Thursday view, you gotta start to take into account uh, of the first day of unleavened bread. The day of preparation is also, if you guys know your feasts and festivals and stuff, you know those, those terms and what have you. We've studied that in, uh, in our study of the Old Testament. But um, the day of preparation, if that's Thursday, it's claimed that people would have been resting on the Friday and then hence uh, Thursday became the day of preparation in that particular view. And, and there's a lot of solid people that I agree with in a lot of their theology. I would say that's, that's the view they hold, the Thursday view. The, the Friday view um, has a lot to do, and uh, man, we could get really into all this, but it has a lot to do with Jewish tradition that doesn't require, when Jews th say three days, and this is true, this is a true fact, when Jews say three days, you could say three days are this. Um, like um, probably the best way is to put this is to say, uh, say like for example, Friday night at 11.59 p.m. Uh, you're there and then the clock strikes 12 and then you go through Saturday and then the clock strikes 12.01 and then you're in, in Sunday. The Jews would call that three days. 
Does that make sense? And it's because they touched the other days. If you touch the day, that counts as a whole day. Um, well, how do you know that, Brett, talking Jewish tradition? Well, the Bible actually does that uh, in a very obscure passage. Uh, maybe you ladies are gonna be this because I know you just started the book of Esther last night, the Esther study with Amy. Um, and if you go to Ex Esther, you can jot this down if you're interested. Esther 4, 16 uh, and Esther 5, 1. There's a, if you compare those two verses, there's a three-day period defined by the Jews in that story of Esther but it really is not a full three days. And, and you can demonstrate how the Jew, Jewish mindset, if you touch a day, that counts as a full day. Um, so the idiom, it's not three full days, like 72 hours, like the Wednesday crowd argues, but it's a shorter version of three days in that they uh, touch. Now there's, there's some problems with that too, uh, that, those arguments and what have you. But um, the idea is that uh, at the end, in the end of the Sabbath, that's what verse one says, um, the end of the Sabbath. So some people uh, talk about when, when was officially the end of the Sabbath. And um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's possible that there were two Sabbaths that very week. Uh, you can look that up. Why would there be two Sabbaths in one week during the time of the Passover? Uh, it, it's, it's fairly heady stuff, but I'm not gonna dive fully into all that. But all that to say, um, you know, that, that scripture that, that you kind of, that, that I think for me probably nudges me uh, more than others is, is when Jesus, um, you know, uh, well, you know, Leviticus talks about, you know, um, this, this scripture here uh, where it says, in the 14th day of the first month at evening is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. In the first day you shall have holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. So it's possible that there may have been two Sabbaths during that week because of this, this verse here. Does that make sense? I know it's, I'm probably uh, doing too much uh, in just a small time here, but um, why make a big deal out of this? Um, I don't believe we should. I think that's where I land. Um, I, I, I tend to be as literalist as I can when it comes to the Bible. And when Jesus said this, this is the scripture I lean on. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of earth, the heart of the earth. So, um, you know, I tend to lean more toward maybe like a, a, a more of a Thursday kind of uh, crucifixion, uh, but uh, I wouldn't die on that battlefield and it doesn't make me a non-Christian suddenly. Uh, if you're one that believes, I believe it was Good Friday because my, my priest told me that when I was a kid. Uh, good for you, that's great. And if you wanna believe that, it doesn't really matter. But the thing that we need to remember is Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That's what you need to remember about that. Don't get all hung up. If this is a fun topic for you, then study it, dive into it, it's great. It's, it's a fun study. There's a lot of good scholarly work. But if you're all stressed out about it, you're probably missing the point. Uh, and that's kind of important, I think, for us to remember. I, I bring this up because uh, people do joust over these things for uh, no reason, if you ask me. Well, anyway, continuing on uh, from verse, verse one, um, it says in verse two, and behold, there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and, and sat upon it. <laughs> um, you know, I showed you on Sunday the picture of the stones that they would have put in the trough and roll. And some people say, well, that looks like it'd be easy to roll that big old stone in a trough. 
Well, it, it might be, honestly, um, you know, uh, especially if you're me. That's one thing I'm good at. Uh, I, I'm not good at a lot of things, uh, but uh, I can move things. Uh, that's a gift I have. Um, and and I, I'd like to try that. Uh, when we're on Masada, there's these, it's kind of a fun thing because um, I probably shouldn't do this, but it's just kind of a fun thing. There's a pile of catapult stones piled up on the uh, on the top of Mastada, like and and um and there there are stones that are you know about this big and it's just kind of fun to walk over and pick one up you know it's like I'm just kind of looking at it and <laughs> and I, I can do that uh, most 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 of our tour group can't do that and and uh, we even had people you know from uh, Masada said can you do that again? Did you just lift that, that catapult stone? <laughs> I don't know how much I weighed, uh, but that'll come into our teaching here in a second. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but rolling this stone would have been huge because it was probably at least two tons and it would have been rolled in the trough, but there was also a channel at the end of the trough where the stone kind of drops in. Uh, Josephus writes about these, Josephus wrote about everything uh, in, the, in his books, his works of antiquities, first century uh, historian who wrote about all kinds of stuff first century. But one of the things he talked about is how they'd roll these stones in the trough and then it would chunk, kind of drop into its notch. Um, and it would take at least 20 men with ropes and stuff like that to pull that out of the notch and then roll it back away from the opening of a tomb. Uh, they didn't want just people coming and rolling a stone away and robbing tombs and stuff like that. So they were meant to be immovable. That, that's the point of the, the deal. Um, so graves were usually in a depression and the stone was rolled down an incline to cover the mouth of the tomb uh, and what have you. Um, but what's interesting, and I mentioned this on Sunday, but I didn't give you a reference to this. In John 20, Matthew here says the stone was rolled away, which makes for great songs and, and a great picture. He rolled away the stone. I remember a great old song that we sang, rolling away the stone. Um, and later a band came called the Rolling Stones. But, um, <laughs> but in John chapter 20, verse one, uh, there's a little different word. And this is, this is where it, it sort of raises a question. It's John 20, verse one, the first day of the week, cometh Mary Magdalene early, it was yet dark unto the sepulcher and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Now that's an interesting thing. Was it rolled away or taken away? The Greek word here is the Greek word airo. Uh, and this word means literally to raise up, elevate, lift up, remove and carry away. <laughs> that, that's kind of cool. I like that. I mean, the rolling of the stone is kind of cool. But see, even if you take Matthew's uh, you know, um, description here, what this means is, is this angel comes and lifts a two-ton stone and kind of walks, sets it down and sits on it. I like that. That's awesome. Uh, these angels, man, they, they, you know, um, they, there must be some power in this angel lifting a two-ton stone, carrying it away, poomp, and then sitting on it. What's the point? Uh, was it rolled away or completely lifted away? I think the message is don't mess with the dude that moved it. You know, that's the message I take away from that. Um, uh, also, um, there, there's another earthquake. Uh, you know, there was, there was an earthquake when he died, uh, on the cross, and now there's another earthquake as uh, he raises up from the grave. Uh, so that's kind of part of the deal too. And verse three goes on, it says, and his countenance, this angel, was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. Who are these keepers? Well, if you remember in Matthew 26, 
verses 65, and uh, you can just look up a few verses there. Remember when he says in verse 65, uh, you have a watch. Um, that'd be a group of about 50 Roman soldiers. There's debate on what a watch was uh, as far as how many soldiers. Probably one of the most common numbers you'll get out there from scholars and historians is 50. So he says, you have a watch. I'm giving you a team of Roman soldiers. Go your way, make the, the, the tomb as sure as you can. Uh, so they went away and made the, the t- sepulcher sure. That's what it says there. Um, but uh, what would be, you know, if you were talking about an angel and trying to give a description, what's the brightest thing they knew of in those days? Um, you know, we have a lot of bright things that we, can, we could use in our current modern culture. But in those days, lightning was probably the brightest description you could ever say. So, so this angel was as bright as lightning. What did that look like? Um, did it blind them? Was, did they have to cover their faces when they saw this angel? If it was bright as lightning, uh, it must have been blinding. Um, and so much so that the Romans fell down as dead men. That's an interesting description. These tough Roman soldiers. Question, um, if the Roman soldiers fell down like dead men, why did the women not? Have you thought about that? Why are the women walking up and the angels, hey, he's not here, he's risen. All these guys are still flapping around on the ground, you know, like dead men or whatever. Um, Why are the women okay? Um, Well, as it turns out, I see this as a pattern in the Bible. God protects his people um, and God is able to help them. Now, the Bible says no man can see God and live. Um, and there's a whole another uh, interesting study on that. We'll, we'll talk about that more later. But, um, but in Exodus, you know, remember the story of Moses wanting to see God and, and there in uh, Exodus 33, 20, um, you know, uh, and the Lord said, Moses, you cannot see my face. Uh, there, no man shall see me and live. So there um, later, the Lord put Moses in a cleft of a rock. How, how was Moses able to be near God's presence when he passed by? in the safety of a rock. There's a picture. The rock of Christ is the only way we're gonna be able to see God through the cleft of the rock, Jesus. Like the pictures are beautiful there. But he gets hidden in a rock, the Lord passes by, and Moses sees only the afterglow uh, of God's passing by. And, um, but the Lord protects him through that. And I see that that's kind of a, a deal. Um, one day we will see him face to face. Revelation 22, jot this down in your notes. Revelation 22, three through five. Um, when it says, when we, when we get to go to heaven, there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him and his servants, that's us, they shall see his face and his name shall bear their foreheads and there shall be no night there. They need no candle, neither sun or uh, light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they shall reign forever and ever. Uh, what a description um, no more need for a son because God is so bright. But when we see him, we'll be like him and we'll be given new bodies. Our eyeballs will be able to behold <laughs> uh, his face. Uh, rather now, if you saw him, you'd die. No man can see God. It, you might say in his fullness uh, and live. Um, but Jesus came as a man, God as a man. That's, that's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's why I say in his, in his fullness, you can't see God, but Jesus was God in the flesh. But there's something powerful about these angels, and I love that. It's kind of cool. Uh, verse five, and the angel answered and said unto the women, fear not ye, 
For I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goes before you into Galilee, and there you shall see him. Lo, I have told you. Um, before I get into this most amazing sermon, this is a, this is a sermon really given by this angel. It's, uh, you might even argue uh, the first sermon ever preached after the resurrection of Jesus came from an angel, a sermon from an angel. But before we get to that, uh, let's, let's talk about one of the cynics problems with this. Was it one angel or two? Problem, Matthew 28, five refers to the angel at the tomb. Um, and yet John chapter 20, verse 12 says there's two angels there. Um, so the problem, the skeptics, the cynics, they see contradiction in the Bible. Was it one angel or two angels? But um, here's the thing. I always kind of crack up at these guys. They're, they're, you know, they're not really open-minded to different perspectives, what people saw, what they cared about. Um, have you ever noticed that people tell stories differently? If you saw the same thing, people say different things. It doesn't necessarily mean they're contradictory, but they might sound very different. Um, if you ask Debbie, how did you and Brett meet and get married? Uh, and then you ask me the same question, you're gonna get two very different stories. Uh, they're, they're both beautiful stories, right Deb? <laughs> they're both beautiful. Mine is, you know, maybe 30 seconds, but uh, Debbie's is a couple hours, uh, the story. Um, <laughs> uh, and there's details that I totally, you know, don't remember, but at the same time, I think there's things I remember that she doesn't. Does that make us contradictory? No, we just have kind of different perspectives. Um, in the same way, the solution here, Matthew doesn't say there was only one angel. That's something important to note. John says there was two, and wherever there's two, there's all, also always one, right? It's not hard. This is kindergarten level, level math. It never fails. If there's two angels, there's also one. Um, the critic has to add the word only to the gospel of Matthew, which is not there. If Matthew said there was only one angel, uh, it doesn't say that. Um, it just says the angel uh, that took away the stone sat there and told the women this. It doesn't say there was only one angel, uh, according to Matthew's account. So if people try to you know, throw the word only in there, that's what they do. And, and, and you know, 18-year-old kids in universities and colleges fall for that. Uh, oh, Matthew's contradictory to John. Oh no, I need to throw my Bible away. Mom and dad were wrong. Uh, transgenderism is right. Uh, like that, that's, what we're, that's what we're seeing uh, with this kind of nonsense. But in this case, the problem's not that with the Bible. It's with what the critic adds to it, saying that it was only one. Matthew, by the way, if, if you read the, the story and know the, the situation, Matthew probably focuses on the one who spoke um, and said to the women, don't be afraid. John referred to how many angels they saw, um, uh, two, but Matthew doesn't talk about how, how many angels they saw. Okay, does that make sense? Uh, I wanted to do that, and, and boy, we could just go crazy with the resurrection story and, and the cynics trying to tear it apart uh, with contradictions uh, apparent but they're, they're just not there. Uh, and there's all kinds of false narratives out there. But uh, if you wanna do a good sermon, if somebody asks you to do a sermon, you already have a great outline right here from this, uh, this angel. You can steal this sermon and his points. Um, uh, did you see the first sermon after the resurrection? Let's, let's break it down here a little bit, I love it. Um, the first thing he says is come. 
Uh, man, you know, I love, I love the invitation. Uh, always in the Bible, we're, we're invited to come to Jesus. Come and see, come and dine. Uh, boy, you can talk about all the invitations that are given to us in the word of God. The second word, come and then see. Uh, you know, look and see uh, that Jesus, he is risen. He is not here. The resurrected savior. Uh, you know, first we need to come and take a look and then we, we learn about what he did for us. And then the next word he gives us is go. And now go and tell. That's number four. You gotta get up and go, but you also have to go and do what? Number four, tell. Uh, this is like a great four-point sermon, you know? Um, I love, I love uh, you know, this, this story because um, these women are given very clear instructions. Uh, we'll see how they did in a minute. But... Um, there's something about people that are not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And the Bible warns us not to be hearers only, but to be doers. Um, I, I wish I could tell you all the fun stories of people that have sat and listened to the scripture as we go through it here verse by verse, and even the most difficult passages. And when people just go and do what the word tells them to do, they're, they're always rewarded. Obedience always leads to happiness. Um, you see that all the time. It doesn't mean your life's gonna be perfect and rosy and all that, but to obey God is to be right with God. Um, I could tell you stories. Uh, there, you know, there's this one time I was talking about uh, the Great Commission to go and preach the gospel. And, and, you know, and I even challenged the church one Sunday to, to actually look for opportunities to share the good news, the gospel with someone. Um, uh, if the Lord stirs your heart, you know, and, and this one uh, couple in our church, uh, they were, I think it was the 217, they were off taking an exit in Beaverton, and there was one of those guys with a sign, you know, that a lot of times people say, oh, he just wants money for meth or whatever. But the Lord stirred their heart to, to, to roll down their window, and they just said, God bless you, and gave him like, you know, a few bucks and stuff. But after they rolled their window up and pulled around, they, they felt stirred to go and park their car and walk out and talk to them. Um, and so they, they went out, parked their car across the way, went across the crosswalk, and then just started talking with us. And as it turned out, um, you know, the sign says, you know, uh, out of gas, you know, have family, need to get home, uh, all that stuff. And you're kind of like, yeah, right. Uh, nice story, nice sob story, you know. Well, as it turned out, after we, long knowing about this, that was their true story. They literally were stranded. And they literally had children and a family and a car out of gas and they were stuck and they had a bad set of circumstances that made it so they were truly cashless. And, um, and this couple, they took them home, fed them, and they were not Christian people, um, but uh, this couple led them to Christ and they accepted Jesus right there at their dinner table. And then they called up the church, hey, we got a family who wants to get baptized. And so some of the pastors from Athe went down and did a baptism right there in the Willamette where we always do our baptisms. Um, we got to baptize this family and, uh, and they, they were like weeping and the Lord was blessing. It was just this amazing thing. We were able to get them bus tickets, their family back to home where they needed to go and kind of helped them out. Um, like the follow-up was all legitimate. You know, most of the time you, you have to admit some of that stuff's just, you know, people scamming people. But as it turned out, this was just a couple who heard the challenge of the scriptures on a Sunday morning and just said, we're gonna do what the Bible tells us to do, even if it's difficult or weird or people might think we're nuts. Um, but it was quite a moving thing. And I could go on and on. 
Um, you know, whenever I talk about tithing, which is rare, um, I only talk about tithing when it comes up in scripture, except for right now, I guess. Um, but um, but uh, every time I talk about tithing, I have these young couples come up, Pastor Brett, we were hesitant to tithe and we, ha- you know, we, we just, you know, it's hard to make ends meet and, you know, we have bills and it never works out and we just didn't the math. And, and, but, you know, after we talked about how, you, you know, we're not have to, it's not a got to, it's a get to, it's not a legalistic thing. And we talk about what biblical tithing looks like. Every time I talk about that, I get these couples saying, we can't explain it. The Lord's just blessing us when the math didn't work out before as we just gave you know, to the Lord as the top from the first fruits of, of what we made. Everything else was, you know, 10, the 10% was the Lord. Like they, they weren't doing it out of legalism, but they just did it out of faithfulness to the Lord. And every time they say, the Lord is providing for us more than we, and miraculous things happen, checks in the mail, stuff like that. It's such a cool story to hear how God just does that. And, um, and you know, I, I just love seeing the fruit of being obedient to God's word. That's what these women are gonna do. And these women are some great women that are gonna change the shape of history. Um, so that's the question, are we, are we hearers only or are we actually willing to do, uh, you know, take the challenge uh, and do something that, that you hear. As we go through the Bible together, when you feel challenged to do something, don't just be a hearer. Be a doer and then hang on for the ride because God is faithful to um, bless those that are obedient. Well, how did these women do? Well, they're gonna get an A plus on the go, or come, see, go, tell, sermon. Uh, and we see that in verse eight. And there in verse eight, it goes on. And it says, and they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples' words, uh, the, you know, the word. Um, intense things they saw, but Jesus now is alive. Um, they had fear and they had joy. Um, you know, uh, where were the disciples at this time? Well, if you recall, they're hiding for fear of the Jews. <laughs> but where are the men in the story? Shaken in their sandals. John 20, 19, you know, the first day of the week in the morning time, you know, it says that the doors were shut and the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. It says there in John 20, 19. And and that's where the ladies run and go tell the disciples, guys, you know, Jesus is risen. Um, You know, uh, where do you find joy? Well, you don't find joy um, hiding in fear. I think one of the things we as Christians need to realize is fear is not part of the deal. If you're a fearful person, you gotta do battle against that because the Lord says that we are not to be given over to that spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. And uh, I'm concerned that our culture is moving into more of a fearful mode and it's not a good look. Um, We need to be people who are uh, trusting in the Lord. Um, The disciples were fearful, but the women are boldly going out there to the tomb and where did they find joy? They had fear, but they also had joy. Where did they find joy? Uh, we find joy um, where Jesus is, uh, where Jesus is resurrected. Uh, you might even say the body of Christ, you know, uh, Jesus. Um, but all that to say, have you ever wondered why, I mentioned this, I think, briefly at some of the services this weekend, but why did the Lord use women to be the first ones to see um, the risen Savior or to hear about it? Um, and you, you know, today we might say, well, why wouldn't he? But you have to understand in that culture, in that day, that would have been unheard of. Um, women were never the first to do stuff and, and they were very disrespected. And, and um, you know, uh, the Jews used to pray, Lord, I thank thee that I am not a dog, a Gentile or a woman. 
Like they literally had a prayer that they, like God is good, God is great, we thank you for the food. That's the way some of these Jewish people prayed in the first century. Um, it was a horrible, horrible thing, which is kind of interesting that the Lord says, I'm gonna use women to be the first ones to know the resurrection of Jesus, which is probably the biggest news in the history of the world. And, and the Lord says, I'm gonna use women to be the ones to first get this. Um, and, and I, I, I wanna speculate a little bit here. Why did God use these women? Um, well, the first point I'm gonna say is probably gonna get me into trouble. Um, and that is this one, okay? Hang on to your hats. Number one, God uses the weak to confound the strong. We're not weak. Um, I'll challenge any of you ladies to bench press contest, right? Any, any one of you. I think you're physically amazing in so many ways, but I can beat you in the bench press. Um, <laughs> did you see? Um, that's probably not a good time to be joking about that. Um, um, did you see this article in Not The Bee? Uh, Canadian coach protests gender madness by identifying as a woman at a weightlifting event and breaks female bench record in the process. Um, the funniest part about this story, if you saw it, um, this uh, weightlifting coach claims, you know, derogatorily to be a woman, um, but he uh, sets a new world record in the women's category. But the thing, thing, uh, Avi Silverberg performed the defiant act while the current record holder, a transgender male, stood by watching. Um, what, what's that? Well, there was a, another transgender male who just crushed the other women's record. So this coach says, I'm a woman, and he crushed that guy's record uh, like by hundreds of pounds. Like, it's, it's embarrassing. Um, there, there's this weirdness going on uh, uh, in this world, uh, you know, uh, saying, you know, we can, we're all exact, we're the same. Men and women, there's no different. And then tr the transgender's blurring the, 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 you know, male, female, what's a woman? People are confused today. But, um, you know, as it turns out, people say the Bible's misogynistic. No, the Bible's just true. So like when it says in 1 Peter, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, when it says at 1 Peter 3, 7, likewise, you husband, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife. Does that sound misogynistic for a, a husband to give honor to the wife? That's the Bible. But then you say, but I know the rest of that scripture. Give honor to the wife, even as the weaker vessel and being heirs together, the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. What's the Bible saying when the weaker vessel, it's not weaker inferior. Um, it's just a different vessel. And I love the perfect analogy is the root beer mug and the wine glass. Which vessel's weaker? The wine glass is weaker. You gotta be more careful. You can slam a root beer mug around, slide it down the counter and you know, put it in the freezer. <clears throat> but if you did any of that stuff with a wine glass, you're probably gonna break it. But which one's superior? You put the root beer mug in the freezer, you put the wine glass in a special cabinet because it's a vessel of honor and it's a thing of beauty. Oh, that's so misogynistic, but men and women are different. And, uh, and this is what God says, male and female, did he create them? <laughs> and um, this whole thing where there's no difference between men, it's demonic. There's a demonic element to what the world is trying to push. There's no difference. And, and the saddest thing to me, like so many of these worldviews that we have, it always amazes me how horrible it is for the people that are, you know, we're seemingly trying to support. Uh, like, for example, transgenders um, are people that are in real trouble and need real help. And um, someone who really loves them and cares about them and wants to help them. But the world that's pro-transgender is not that. 
In the same way, those that are saying men and women are equal and do exactly the same thing and they can be bench pressing in the same tournaments and there's no difference between men and women and all this stuff. The people are saying that they're erasing women. There's an erasing of women that's happening. Uh, and that's why all these women athletes are rightly saying this is totally wacko and wrong. Um, I, I'm concerned that um, people are so rebellious against God, they don't wanna acknowledge that God made men and women different. Um, but it doesn't mean better than or worse than. But um, in some ways, especially in that culture, women were perceived as the weaker. Um, and so God says, watch this. I'm gonna use women to be the first ones. And you know that's why, by the way, I am a pastor. It's not because I'm an amazing guy and I'm strong spiritually or strong emotionally or that. It's probably the opposite. The Lord says, I'm gonna choose to use the weak in this world to confound the wise, um, the foolish. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy to admit my shortcomings and that I'm not all that and I'm not enough like the world tries to cram down our throats. You're enough, you're a good person and people like you. No, you, people actually think you're a weirdo and you're probably dumber than you think. But <laughs> guess what? Guess what? The Lord loves us and he says, I will use you. Um, and uh, that's why I'm a pastor because the Lord chooses the weak and the foolish things. In the same way, I love it that the world, particularly in the first century, diminished women in a horrible way. Um, not the Bible, not God. The first century world diminished women in a horrible way. And then God says, watch this. And he used women to do this. And I love that. Um, uh, and, and women are kind of the heroes of the gospel story in so many ways, uh, if you really wanna be honest about the whole thing. Um, the second point, why did God use these women? Because they were the last ones at the cross. So impressive. The disciples, they were gone. They bolted uh, from the cross for the most part. They all left Jesus but it was the women that were the last one. If you remember and you kind of do the gospel, uh, harmony of the gospels, you see the women were the last ones at the cross. Um, maybe jot down Matthew 27, 55 and 56, where it says, many of the women which were beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him, among which was Mary Magdalene, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. These are the last ones that were at the cross, Matthew 27. Um, by the way, uh, some of these women are most impressive because they were also, like, you know, Mary Magdalene, I mean, she was a broken woman when Jesus found her. And some of the people that are broken the most brutally and have been through the hardest life and the hardest things, they're the ones that are most faithful followers of Jesus. They're the ones who love God's mercy more than anybody else. They're the ones who wanna be with Jesus above those that have really not lived hard lives. There's something about a person who's been through a lot. And I think these women had been through a lot. And it's for that reason, they were, um, you know, they were used mightily by the Lord because they'd been broken deeply in their lifestyle and what had happened to them. Number three reason why possibly God used these women is because thousands of years earlier, death came by a woman in the Garden of Eden. Um, isn't it cool? The first Adam, we call it the Adam bomb. Adam bombed out in the Garden of Eden. And Adam gets the credit because he was supposed to be the man, the leader, the covering, and he failed. But Eve's the one who took the first bite of the fruit. And she gets credit for that. Even 1 Timothy 2 talks about, that's, you know, we talked about complementarian versus egalitarian, the big debate in the church. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But um, it, Paul even refers back to that. It was the woman who first was deceived, not Adam. And she goes down through history as the one who got duped into taking the bite. 
But I love how the Lord gives opportunity for the woman to be the one to first bring in salvation, if you would. We know that man brought in sin, but Jesus rose from the grave, thereby conquering sin and death, Adam and Eve. And that's why the Bible refers to Jesus as the last Adam. Uh, The first Adam sinned in the garden and ruined humanity. The last Adam, Jesus, is the one who died and rose from the grave and saved us. And it was by women that that news would come. I love love that there's that kind of redemptive quality of the Lord um, uh, where this, by the way, this happens all through the Bible. People that blew it get a chance to sort of be renewed and have a chance to make sort of something wrong right. Moses can't go into the promised land because he blew it, uh, smashing the rock. And the Lord says, you can't go to the promised land. Um, and then remember Moses, but while they're getting ready to enter in, Moses stood on Mount Nebo and the Lord said, there it is, but you can't go in. And Moses died and you're like, what a bummer. He, he did such a good job for two and a half million people on a camping trip for 40 years. That, that would test your nerves um, a little bit. Come on, Lord, let him in. Um, but the Lord says, no, Moses. But did you know the Lord snuck Moses in? When did the Lord sneak Moses in the promised land, anybody? Transfiguration, Matthew 17, Mark chapter nine, where they looked up and saw Moses standing there with Elijah and Jesus there uh, on Mount Hermon in Israel, in the promised land. Uh, during the time of Christ, Moses got snuck in. How are you gonna get snuck in? Same way. <laughs> You're gonna get snuck into heaven by Jesus. That's the only way Moses made it there. He was with Jesus. Same way you'll get snuck in. And we could go on and on. Remember the Levites? They were a cursed tribe. Why? Because they did the whole thing with the Shechemites. And it's a long story uh, where the Levites did some dastardly deeds and um, circumcised these men and then killed them. It's a long story. Uh, It's one you didn't color in Sunday school, to say the least. (laughs) But because they did this, you know, Judah, uh, uh, or I should say um, Jacob gave them not a blessing, but a curse. They were a cursed tribe. Um, but how did the Lord say, you know what, I'm gonna sneak them in, not as a cursed tribe, but I'm gonna sneak them in as a blessed tribe. Does anybody remember what happened? The golden calf, as Moses brought down the 10 commandments and the people were busting a move. And the, and the golden calf, and they were partying nakedly, dancing around this idol from Egypt. And, and the Lord says, Moses, you know, these people are messing up. And so Moses goes down and Moses said, who is on the Lord's side? And guess who stood up? The Levites, the tribe of Levi stood up and said, we are on the Lord's side. And Moses said, take out your swords and do away with those that are partying around this golden calf causing an abomination before Israel. And the Levites slew um, 3,000 people in that day. And because of that, the Lord says, I'm gonna use the tribe of Levi to be my priests. What a, what a transition from cursed to being the priest of Israel. And, and they didn't get a, an inheritance in the land. That was part of their curse, but their inheritance was the Lord himself. That's how you and I are getting, like the stories go on and on about how God takes curses and he'll turn them around for blessings. I think that's part of what we see here um, with the women being the one to be able to say, guess what? Jesus rose from the grave and they're the first one. Uh, so Eve, the first woman gets a bad rap, but women get to make the most important announcement that ever came on the planet Earth. I love that. Um, another reason why I think Lord used women, this might seem simplistic, is because they were there. 
Do you want to serve here at Athey Creek? Well, you gotta gotta be here. You gotta be here to serve. If you want to plug in, be around. If you want to be an elder in the church at Athey Creek, you kind of need to start elding and and doing and being available to start doing that. Like, like uh, it, it's kind of a funny thing how uh, you kind of just have to be there. And I think <clears throat> the old saying, the best ability is availability. Just to be available to be used. These women are there at the tomb and the Lord says, okay, I'm gonna use these ladies because the disciples are shaking in their sandals. Uh, but anyway, we gotta hurry. Matthew 28, <laughs> verse nine. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, all hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said unto them, be not afraid, go and tell my brethren that they go into Galilee and there they shall see me. Um, They fall at his feet to worship him. Um, in, In John 20, 17, when this happens, John gives us more detail. Jesus said to a woman, touch me not. Why, why did Jesus say, why not touch him? Um, some scholars try to argue that it was because he was just a spirit, but that's not the case. Uh, that's wrong teaching, by the way. But Jesus, um, uh, we could argue about his legitimate being a, a, a risen person. He wasn't some spirit. But um, in some way he was saying, and we'll go through this when we get through the Gospel of John, um, don't cling on my physical body. Uh, is the idea. Um, there's, there's work to be done. There's places to go. There's things to do. Um, and, and cling to, if you would, the body of Christ. Go find my brethren and tell them. So that, that's something we'll cover when we're in John. But um, something to note, in the King James, it says, behold, Jesus with us saying, all hail. And that's such a tough word. We don't say that anymore. Um, when you get home from work, your children don't say, all hail. You know, it's like, it's like what are you, Hitler? Um, um, the word hail there is... Um, it was a common greeting of the day. It wasn't like all, all hail. We even sing the old, all hail the power of Jesus. And we're like, all hail or whatever. Um, well, um, you know, when it says all hail, the Greek word there is kairo, um, which is a word that means greetings and rejoice. It's a happy thing. Be glad and be well, uh, which is really cool. Um, Matthew 28, nine in the English standard version, behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. Like this is a happy Jesus, not a fall down and worship me or else, Jesus. Um, I love this word, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. So Jesus is saying, be happy and cheerful, calm down, everything's good. Uh, you know, and, he was, and they heard his greeting as they were worshiping at his feast. They, I love these, these women are always so good at drawing near and pressing close to Jesus. That's not always a guy response. But um, this natural inclination for you know, these women to be worshiping Jesus. That's something that so much we as men could do better, but they worshiped him. Um, and I like that. Um, they were obedient to what, uh, you know, some worshipers aren't the best at being obedient. They're good at the worship part, but not necessarily the obedient part. And these ladies are gonna do both. Well, verse, um, verse 10, you know, Jesus gives them the instruction, go to Galilee. That's where I'm gonna meet the guys. One of the places we go when we go to Galilee in our Israel trip as we go where Jesus first meets up the disciples there. Um, they call it Peter's primus, uh, you know, primus. It's a place where Peter jumped out of the boat and ran and Jesus had fish cooking up on the seashore. It's really a cool spot uh, in Israel. Well, verse 11. Now, when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city. 
So the soldiers, what do you think the soldiers are gonna do at this point? If you're a Roman soldier, knowing what I talked about last Sunday, remember decimation? Um, what do you do if you're a Roman soldier? Well, they sheepishly, I'm gonna add, uh, says, now going, um, they were going, behold, some of the watch, the soldiers which came in the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. Why don't you suppose they went to their Roman commanding officers? Because uh, they knew they were dead because they lost the thing they were supposed to be guarding. So they go to the priests and verse 12, and when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money to the soldiers. What is this? This is a payoff. Um, saying, uh, say ye, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. Now the soldiers are probably thinking, great idea except for the sleeping part. If we tell them we slept and the disciples came and stole the body, man, we're gonna get in trouble. Well, the, now this is where you start to see the Sanhedrin and the Romans were in cahoots. They were trying to work together to keep a peace. It was an awkward sort of peace that was happening between Rome and Jerusalem and, and it was an ugly, weird thing. But, um, but you, you, you learn a little bit here in verse 14. It says, if this come to the governor's ears, um, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. What day? Until what day? The day Matthew penned this, uh, the gospel of Matthew. But I would say they're still saying the same message until this day. People are still in colleges and universities. Well, the, the soldiers fell asleep and the disciples stole the body. Isn't it funny that that narrative still sort of percolates, which is kind of ridiculous. Um, we went over that, why it's ridiculous. Uh, but this is the Romans trying to figure out the soldiers, how do we not get killed now? So they were paid off to lie and, um, and this seems to have worked out for them just to keep them alive. Verse 16, it says, then the 11 disciples, of course, Judas hung, hung himself, if you recall. The 11 disciples went away to Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, verses 16 and 17 kind of cracked me up because there's a ton of stuff that we just missed. You know, Matthew goes, Phew! and we just missed doubting Thomas. We missed uh, all kinds of the parents of 500. Uh, who doubted and why were they doubting? You guys probably know who we're talking about there. When it says some doubted, hello, Thomas. Um, and the you know, reconciliation to Peter. Like there's a bunch of things we're gonna read in the other gospels that verse 16 and 17 articulate. Uh, verse 18, then Jesus came and spake unto, unto them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, amen. Wow. First of all, verse 19, or verse 18, all power is given to me. Jesus is all powerful. Omnipotent is the word of Jesus who is God. Um, and Jesus has power to do what? He wants, he, he gives us the power to go out and make disciples. And um, when it says go out and teach, you'll notice your margin or your newer translation is go out and make disciples. That means to teach Jesus about, or teach people about Jesus and all the nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Um, really, this, these are Athey Creek's marching orders. 
This is what we do as a church. Um, people say, well, why don't you have the swinging incense? And why don't you do Good Friday? And why don't you do uh, purple hats and robes and pointy hats? And why don't you have people on their knees with wafers in certain ways? That's just human tradition. What we're really told to do is this right here. This is what Jesus actually asked us to do. Go and teach. That's what we're doing right now. We're going through the Bible, teaching the scriptures. Pretty simple. It's not hard to figure this out. But this is what, I, I believe this is what true church really does. Teach. That's one of my sad things about the church's condition. There's a lot of preaching that good sermons about good, nice things and stuff, but there, we've, a lot of the church has lost the art of just teaching through the Bible, teaching the whole scriptures. Go out and make disciples by teaching all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. One of the things that's fun about Athe, if you don't know this, we've been baptizing hundreds of people. It's been so fun. Uh, if you wanna get baptized, call the church office. We have like um, week after week, we're taking you know, 20, 30, 40 people down to the river each week and baptizing them. Even in December, we were baptizing people. We just kind of break the ice and walk in there. Uh, it's really cool. Cold plunges are kind of a, a, a trend right now and see how long you can be in there. Uh, come and be baptized. We'll d double whammy it. You'll feel better, uh, more lively. Your aching joints will feel better. Um, <laughs> when I baptize people in the freezing Willamette, I, I think I've become an expert on body fat. Some of you little skinny people are just like, <laughs> like I can barely hold you, like hold your hand. You know, I'm out there just like, this is great. I feel, I'm, I feel great. Uh, but some of you guys, I worry about some of you making it through the baptism sometimes. Um, anyway, um, but uh, Jesus teaches them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. So do what I told you to do. And, he's, and then I love this promise at the end. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. There was a guy who was afraid of flying and heights and stuff like that and didn't want to get on an airplane. But this Christian brother gave him an encouraging word saying, man, the Bible says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, the Lord's with you. And the guy says, yeah, but he says, lo, I am with you always. <laughs> no, this just means that the Lord Christ is always with us. If you're a Christian, um, you have Jesus with you. What a glorious thing. Be careful where you take Jesus, by the way. Have you ever thought about that? If Christ is with you, uh, are you going places that are honoring to Christ? Are you saying things, doing things that are honoring to Christ? Um, this is an important thing. Well, as we close this, uh, have you noticed each week I have a little red box on my notes here that kind of represents each story, each section of the Gospel of Matthew? And I, I, um, I, I don't know if you've noticed those, but if, if you go back through the study, um, there's a bunch of boxes that represent, uh, you know, Jesus, everything from, you know, uh, uh, you know, walking on the water. Uh, there's things there, all these little things. Um, uh, but I, I love it, you know, um, uh, because really this whole book, uh, it, it really represents Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as King. And that's the theme. That's what we go away with, with the gospel of Matthew. Uh, Jesus, our resurrected King, Jesus, the Messiah. Um, amen. 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 Well, Lord, we're so thankful uh, that we get to uh, have your word to give us wisdom and direction and guide us, Lord. Help us not to think worldly, but help us to think uh, according to your scriptures, Lord. 
Um, thank you for this crew here on these Wednesday nights, both here and also watching online all over the world. Uh, what a joy to uh, be able to travel through scripture together. May it bring forth good fruit in our lives. Bless these, your people, as we go our way tonight. May uh, you let our lights shine, Lord, before, uh, before this dark world, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>